Good morning, I'm Barb Boylan, and as always, it's my honor to be reading scripture today. We're in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verses 8 through 13. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God's, God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a great famine throughout Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see you and to be with you. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad that you're here on this Mother's Day. We do want to extend um, a special thank you and a special welcome to all of our moms or our moms-to-be. So glad to have you with us. Thankful not only for our physical mothers uh, who give us life, but also our spiritual mothers who have such an amazing impact and blessing uh, on us. And so thank you so much for being here today. Well, our reading from the book of Acts this morning is really a summation of what happens in the last several books, uh, ra rather last several chapters of the book of Genesis, and so we'll be jumping around a little bit uh, to see some of those specifics. So if you can turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42, you will need your Bibles today. Hopefully you have them, if not a physical copy on your phone or something else that you can look at, but we'll look at a lot of those texts in the latter half of the book of Genesis. Well, for the last 15 years or so, I've had facial hair of some sort or another. And the main reason for that, as my wife will attest, is that without it, I look like a prematurely graying 12-year-old. I can't remember if those are her words, but it's something along those lines. And about a year ago, I decided to go clean-shaven for the first time in a long time. Some of you may remember that fateful day because you're still traumatized by what you saw. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, it's funny when people come up to you after you've done something like that, they'll come up to you and they'll say something like, oh, you shaved, which is just a statement of fact. It's not a compliment. It's not saying that you look nice. It's just the reality of the situation. But no one was more traumatized by that than my children. My daughter cried when she saw me, and my sons told me explicitly that they would not give me a hug until I had grown the beard back. And when I asked Jessica what she thought, if I remember correctly, she said, well, it's something. So it was a rough week at the Moser household. There's something about seeing someone who's always had a beard shave that is disorienting. We kind of get used to the way that people look. And depending on who that person is, you may not even recognize them when they shave. Well, at the time of the patriarchs, it was standard practice in the lineage of Abraham particularly that, particularly that men would not shave their faces or their heads. It was just a cultural thing for them. Shaving was an indication of grief. It was something that men only did in the times of mourning. And at the same time, the fashion in Egypt, particularly among the court of Pharaoh, was for men to shave their heads and faces a la Yul Brenner in the 1955 version of the Ten Commandments. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, 
watch the movie, all right? And that's likely the look that Joseph is sporting at this point in his life. He's now been established as the second most powerful person in the most powerful country in the world at this time, the country of Egypt. And so with all of this in mind, you can imagine how this scene in Genesis chapter 42 begins to unfold. The famine that Joseph had predicted was coming through the inspiration of God's Spirit has begun to spread over the land after seven years of plenty, and that famine is now, is now feeling its reality among all of the people in this region. So much so that Jacob, Joseph's father, now realizes that if they don't have some sort of outside intervention, both he, his family, and all of their livestock are not going to make it. And so we're actually told at the beginning of chapter 42 that he begins this uh, chapter by looking at his sons and saying to them, why are you all here sitting here looking at each other? Travel to Egypt, go get us some food and come back, but leave Benjamin here. And if you were with us a few weeks ago, we talked about this idea that Jacob had this deep and abiding affection for his wife, Rachel. He loved her more than anything else in his life. They had been together at this point for probably 50 years when she finally passes in giving birth to Benjamin. Jacob's affection was then moved on to Joseph, the eldest son that he and Rachel had together. And when Joseph disappears off of the scene, all of this love and affection that he had for his wife and the eldest son of his relationship with Rachel is now moved into Benjamin. He will do anything to protect this boy. And in a human sense, that's completely understandable. In fact, it's natural in many ways. But as we see, it's sort of like trying to hold on to sand. The tighter he grips onto the safety and well-being of his son, the more it seems like it's slipping between his fingers. Jacob wanted to keep Benjamin safe, and this trip to Egypt that the brothers were going to take was about 200 miles in the middle of famine conditions on the backs of donkeys. This is a harrowing journey. The trip itself was dangerous, not only because of the conditions and the potential of bandits, but also because once they arrived in Egypt, they would have to appear before a magistrate who had virtually no limits on his power and virtually no accountability for what it was he was going to do. Their lives were going to be entirely in the hands of this one man. But look what happens when they arrive. Chapter 42, beginning in verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came, look at this, and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Now remember that, we, that these men have not seen Joseph in well over 20 years. The last time they saw him, he was a young man with a full head of hair and a multicolored coat. That was the mental image that they had of him in their minds. But now, here stands a 40-something-year-old man who is the second most powerful person in the known world with his head and beard shaved, who's dressed, looked, and presumably walked like an Egyptian. But even aside from the change in his appearance, Joseph is literally the last person in the world whom they would have expected to appear before them. They presumed that Joseph was dead. 
And they say this, in fact, in verse 13. They say, we are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father. And what does he say then? And one is no more. And as they stand before Joseph, they do what anyone would have done in the presence of the vice pharaoh. They bow. And in doing so, they fulfill the prophetic dream that Joseph had had nearly 25 years earlier. Now think about this. In a twist of irony, these boys were so angry at him, they were so spiteful of this dream that he'd been given that they initially plotted to kill him and ultimately decided and said to sell him into slavery to make some money off of him just to ensure that this dream would never come to fruition. And in the amazing upside-down economy of God, it is exactly that action that ensured the dream's fulfillment. There is nothing, brothers and sisters, nothing that can derail the will of God. He cannot be outwitted or outmaneuvered. His will cannot be circumvented or altered And they find themselves in this moment bowing down before the very brother that they had sworn to kill and ultimately sold into slavery. And Joseph in this moment could have taken this opportunity to set things straight. He had a legitimate beef with them. And this could have been the moment where he decided to take his revenge. But instead, he uses this as an opportunity to test his brothers. He wanted to see what they've learned in the intervening years. So he doesn't reveal his identity at all, but he forms a plan. It's a long plan that takes three whole chapters to play out. But he begins by saying this in chapter 42, verse 9. He says, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Now that charge right on the face of it is rather absurd. Because if you were sending spies into the land of Egypt, you wouldn't have chosen 12 brothers who were of Hebrew descent traveling in a pack together to go see the viceroy of Egypt. But this is the accusation that Joseph makes to them, and they they respond by saying, no, we're not spies. We're just family men. We're here to find some food. We're going to take it back to our father and our youngest brother. And Joseph says this. He says, if you're not spies, then one of you stay here while the rest of you return home and bring back the youngest. And if you return, I'll know that you're not spies, and I'll barter with you. The brothers are understandably terrified at this notion. They have to leave their brother Simeon with this representative of Pharaoh who they don't know and whom they don't trust, and they're even more terrified with the prospect of having to return home to Jacob and tell him that his most beloved son Benjamin was going to have to make this trek back with them once again to see the same magistrate. And so as the brothers leave to return home, they say in verse 21 amongst themselves to each other, we are guilty concerning our brother Joseph in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. We're given a picture into the hearts of these brothers that we have not yet seen to this point. It's really the heart of regret. It's the heart of guilt And we're given a picture into what happens in chapter 37, that not only did did they put Joseph into this pit, but they did so while he was crying and screaming and begging his brothers to have mercy on him. 
And because of what they'd done, they assumed that God had allowed this moment to befall them in their lives, that this false accusation was the means of them getting what they finally deserved. That this was God's way of punishing them for their actions. But once again, they do not account for the grace of God. Because God's grace was being worked in this situation in a way that was completely unknown to them. God was using this moment in a way that was entirely hidden for them. So Joseph sends them on their way, but first he has his servants fill their sacks with food, and then he has them put on top of that food all of the money that they had brought to purchase it. When they arrive home, they discover the money in their sacks. Their terror increases. The Egyptian who had just accused them of spying is now holding their brother and thinks probably in their minds that they stole this money and this food from him. And we see Jacob's response when they arrive home in verse 35 of chapter 42. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Now, Jacob's response is so telling. It's so telling as to where he finds himself in terms of his own spiritual maturity, and it's revealing of our own attitudes in times of trouble and trial. This man, to be fair, has experienced all kinds of heartbreak all kinds of difficulty, and he can't bear the thought of experiencing more, but this man has also seen God work in unbelievable, miraculous ways all throughout the course of his life. He's seen promise after promise after promise after promise delivered by God, but in this moment, he doesn't think about those things at all. What he thinks about is himself. Because when push comes to shove, his mind doesn't drift to the many graces and assurances he's received, but rather he immediately reverts back to the self-centered, doubting attitude that has marked him all along. And listen, God still shows grace to him. This man, at this point in his life, is 142 years old. And for 142 years, he has seen firsthand and witnessed firsthand the amazing benevolence and grace and deliverance of God. And he still doesn't get it. So often we presume that with age comes spiritual maturity. And often that is the case. We do grow spiritually as we grow older. But the two are not a one-to-one correlation. And were you to live for hundreds or thousands of years, you would still find yourself in moments of spiritual immaturity. And the amazing blessing in all of that is that God's grace and deliverance and love towards you is not dependent on your spiritual maturity. It is not dependent on your ability to trust in those moments where you might have doubts. His faithfulness is always there. His love is always there. And if you get nothing else from this series, at least walk away with the truth ringing in your ears that the way of God's grace is not our way. 
We have a tendency, I think, to believe that God has grace for all kinds of people and for all kinds of sins, but that he cannot have grace for certain sins, probably the sins that you deal with. We tend to think of ourselves as the exception to the rule. Why? Because we know our own hearts. We know the struggles that we have. We know the temptations that we give into, and we look at other people, particularly within the context of the church, and at least on the surface, we presume that everybody else has their life together. We presume that others don't struggle with the same sins that we struggle with, that they don't have the same wrestles that we have, that they believe in a way that we don't believe, that they've got it together. And the truth of the matter is that if all of our temptations and all of our thoughts and all of our actions and all of our behaviors were played on a screen in front of us this morning, there is not one person in this room who would feel good about it. Not one. In the words of one Puritan, you ought to be the worst sinner that you know. It's the reason why Paul could say without any, without any doubt in his mind that he was the chief of sinners. Why could he say that? Because he knew his own heart. He knew his own culpability. But under the watchful eye of our own conscience, our own struggles are revealed. How, how can God have grace for the sins that beset me? How can God have grace for the sins that I've embraced? How can God have the grace for sins that I come back to time and time and time again? But the lives of the patriarchs show us nothing if not the long-suffering of God toward us. Jacob is constantly worrying and doubting and scheming and controlling, and God is consistently pulling Jacob's grip off of the things in his life that he is holding on to for his hope and gently placing his hands on God. See, if we were God, we would have given up on Jacob and we would have given up on these brothers and frankly, we would have given up on ourselves long, long ago. But God places such a value on his children. He places such such worth on you. He's so abiding in patience and he is so devoted to your joy in him that he endures your doubts. He endures your self-pity. He endures your wicked choices long past what you would have been willing to deal with. And the reason for that, according to the Bible, the Bible actually tells us this, is that God is love. that in some way that we can't quite understand, God himself actually personifies love. The only way we even know what love is is because God deigns to demonstrate it to us and to put it within our hearts and our experience that we would have no sense of what love is if God hadn't shown it to us. And yet, like Jacob, in our moments of sin and failure, I have the audacity to believe that somehow God can't love, care for, or provide for someone like me. And certainly, Jacob's struggle in this moment is just one more opportunity in which God looks down at him and says, I still love you, and I have not neglected you. And just as an extra means of displaying that love, God uses the words of Joseph to the brothers to remind them of his presence. The brothers and Jacob had been given an assurance by the unrecognized Joseph that if they returned with Benjamin, they will live, chapter 42, verse 18, for I fear God. 
Joseph was using the language that his brothers and his father knew well, and despite his assurances of the, recogn- of the recognition that he knew who their God was, they still had this worry. So Jacob sends the brothers back with Benjamin in tow, and, and they loaded up the donkeys with twice as much money as they had originally taken in hopes to make amends with this magistrate. When they arrive at this place, Joseph sees them coming. He orders the brothers to be taken to his own house for a meal. The brothers automatically assume that they're going to be killed for their actions. And when he arrives home and sees for the first time since his own childhood, his younger brother Joseph we find this amazing outpouring of emotion from him. This is the brother with whom he shared a mother. This is the brother who presumably he loved in a special way and see his reaction in chapter 43, verse 9. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered, entered his chamber and wept there. Decades of emotion are poured out in a moment to the point where Joseph can't even compose himself in front of his brother Benjamin, unless we think that these Old Testament characters are unfeeling, unmoving slabs of granite. Joseph is weeping uncontrollably at the sight of his brother. He likely thought that he would never see Benjamin again, but here he was alive and well. Well, in chapter 44, Joseph decides to give the brothers one final test. He has his servants pack up the food that the brothers had purchased, but this time he slips in his own silver cup from his home, a cup that likely indicated his place of prominence and wealth within Egyptian society, and he had them place it inside Benjamin's sack. He sent them on their way, and when they're just outside of the city, he sends his servants to go intercept them and to demand to check their luggage for the stolen cup. And the brothers respond, understandably, in an impetuous manner. This is typically the way they behave throughout the story. And they say, look, none of us stole it, and we're so confident of it that if you find this cup, you can kill the thief and put the rest of us into slavery. Maybe back down just a little bit. Well, of course, the servant finds the cup in Benjamin's luggage. The brothers are brought back before Joseph, and we find this exchange. It's lengthy, but please listen to these words if you don't read along with me. In chapter 44, beginning in verse 14, notice this exchange between Joseph and Judah. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Here they are, bowing once again. Joseph said to them, what deed is it that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants or your servants. Both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But Joseph said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. In other words, he says, this is your chance. Leave Benjamin here in my slavery. Go back, return to your father's house. You're not in trouble at all. 
Then Judah, verse 18, went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. Verse 27, when we left Canaan, our father said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me and I said, surely he's been torn to pieces and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. You're going to kill me. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Look what he says, verse 33. Now, therefore, please... Let me, your servant, remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Now, I want you to notice the significance of this exchange. Joseph says, this is your chance. Benjamin's the only one who's been caught with the silver cup. The rest of you go. I'll keep him as my servant. He's giving them an opportunity to escape with their lives and their food, the food that their family desperately needed, in exchange for doing to Benjamin the same thing that they had done to him. And of all the brothers, notice who speaks up. It's Judah. This is the same brother who hated Joseph so much that he came up with the idea of selling him into slavery. And Judah, over these last 20-some years, has been so transformed by whatever means of God's grace he's experienced that he doesn't just beg for mercy, but he actually offers to stay as a servant in place of Benjamin. This is transformation. This is life alteration. And what is it that brought that about in Judah's life? Love for his father. Notice that in verse 34, he doesn't say that he's afraid of what his father would do to him, but literally he says, I can't imagine the misery, the sadness, the physical death that will take place when my father hears this news. It's going to kill him. See, the only thing that brings about transformation in our lives is seeing and experiencing the love of the Father. Because according to 1 John chapter 4, we love him because he first loved us. It's only when we come to know the one-way, unconditional love of our Father that our own desires and affections and actions begin to change. See, fear of a father may lead you to conform, it may lead you to sneak, to hide, to cover, but only the love of the father can lead us to love him in return. And that's what Judah has experienced in these intervening years. So what does Joseph do? Chapter 46, beginning in verse 1, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all the attendants, and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. 
Then Joseph said to his brothers, listen to this language, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. All of the spiritual immaturity of Jacob. finds its mirror opposite in Joseph. Joseph is a picture of the redeemer of this family. Abraham lied and doubted and mistrusted and deceived. Isaac lied and doubted and mistrusted and deceived. Jacob lied and doubted and mistrusted and deceived. But here is Joseph who for the first time in the history of his family seems to get it. And you can imagine the emotional release in this text. Joseph is so moved by the words of Judah and by the presence of Benjamin and frankly, the 20-some years of both difficulty and grace that he breaks down in tears. He is wailing so loudly that everyone in the vicinity can hear him and everyone in Pharaoh's household heard about it later. Joseph tells them who he is, and the brothers are so stunned that they can't even respond to his inquiry about their father. And they assume in this moment that this is when they're going to get their just desserts. But instead, Joseph says, come here. See me up close. Look at me. Do you recognize me now? And don't be scared and don't be terrified for even though you think you're the ones who sent me here, it was actually God. Joseph says, all of this has been according to the plan of God for the provision of his people and for the saving of lives. Joseph recognizes what no one else in the story has recognized to this point, that everything that has happened in their lives has been for God's ultimate glory and their ultimate joy. That's a phrase that you hear us use a lot, but that word ultimate is an important modifier in that sentence. Because there are going to be all kinds of times in your life, maybe you're even in one of those seasons right now, where you wonder in your mind how in the world as my own life seems to grow darker, or as this world seems to grow darker, how is it that God can somehow be glorified in this? When we look at foreign nations and we see Christian brothers and sisters murdered by governments, murdered by terrorist organizations, whole churches and whole regions and nations of the world seemingly snuffed out when we see an increasing hostility in Christianity even throughout Western culture, there's something in our minds that goes, God, where are you in this? Do you see what's happening? 
how can you possibly be glorified in what we're experiencing now? And just as much as that, how in the world is it that you can actually care for my joy given what I'm experiencing, whether that's on a, a global scale, a national scale as we look at the world around us, or on a very personal scale? Terrifying diagnoses, recent losses, wayward kids, marriages on the rocks. How in the world, God, can you claim to care about my joy when I'm in the middle of experiencing this? But what God is after is your ultimate joy and his ultimate glory. Because God always has the lasting and the eternal in mind. He is after something bigger and he wants better for you than what you could even imagine to ask for. He is after something that has long-term significance and meaning, even if that means the temporary pain and discomfort of this world and the seeming dimness of the gospel message throughout it. From this point, Joseph sends for his father. The family's reunited. Joseph spends the remaining years of his life, caring for his family, spending time with his father, providing for them until in chapter 50, at the age of 147, Jacob dies. And immediately, once again, the fears and the suspicions of these brothers are roused. What's Joseph going to do to us now? Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. You can almost hear the pathetic whimper of that request. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Listen, thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You see, Joseph understood what we fail in our own worries and our own sadness, our own uncertainty. He understood what we fail to understand, that he was not God. He was entrusting justice to God even as he had depended on the grace of God. And realizing that God is in control and had purpose for his life enabled him to begin to extend forgiveness to brothers who by all human accounts did not deserve forgiveness. But the story doesn't even end there. Because what Joseph says in that text is, 
by what God has enabled to happen in my life, by what he has planned out and mapped out for me, many are alive today who would not have been alive. And here's what we know, and you can read about this in chapters 48 and 49 if you'd like to on your own time. Here's what we know happens from this point forward. In chapters 48 and 49, Jacob goes to the brothers and he says, I'm going to give a blessing to each of you. And he goes through those brothers and he blesses each of them and each one of those brothers has a tribe named after them. Tribes that would ultimately make up 12 tribes of Israel. It was one more means of God's fulfillment of his promise to Joseph's great-grandfather Abraham. He was still protecting that line, delivering that line. And who does the Savior come from? The line of Judah. In God's miraculous and gracious means, salvation comes through the line of the one who specifically betrayed Joseph. When you read through the genealogies of Jesus Christ, what you find is an absolute mess. People who are broken and jacked up beyond belief, and yet somehow God in his grace uses all of these seemingly disparate broken pieces to bring a redeemer of whom Joseph is the forerunner. See, the truth is, there was another who was just like Joseph, but who, unlike him, was actually God. One who had the power and the right to pour out wrath, but chose instead to extend grace. You see, much like Joseph, Jesus lived a life that was blameless, faultless, except he was truly perfect, even where Joseph wasn't. At the cross, Jesus, like Joseph, was abandoned, rejected, mistreated, and left for dead. He was doubted by those who had followed him. He was denied by those who were closest to him. He was rejected by those whom he had come to save. But what mankind meant for evil, God intended for good. And like Joseph, it was Satan's plot to kill Jesus and keep him from accomplishing what God had prophesied that ensured that God's will would be perfectly done. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, three days after his crucifixion, he demonstrated his power once and for all over sin and death and hell. Salvation came through the very means intended to destroy all spiritual hope. And just like Joseph sat at the right hand of Pharaoh, so Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding and providing salvation for those who hated him. And as if that weren't enough, just like Joseph's brothers, Jesus refuses to accept us as servants, but insists that we be received with comfort as family loving, caring, and providing for our needs. So brothers, in the middle of hardship, hardship about which others may know nothing, understand that there is one who knows specifically what you're experiencing. 
who has faced agony and struggle even beyond whatever hardship you may be going through. And I say that not to diminish your hardship, but simply to say that there is one who understands it. Remember that in the middle of that, God's promise is to spare and deliver. To give ultimate glory and your ultimate joy and your ultimate satisfaction in him. Remember his promise to be with you like he was with Joseph in the prison. Remember his promise to restore you when everything seems broken. And remember that everything, everything, is within the control of his loving hand. Would you pray with me? God, you've been so kind and so gracious to us. Our mere presence here this morning is a reminder of your grace. That we can gather together, that we, arro- that we arrived here safely, that we were able to open up your word, read it, spend time with brothers and sisters, sing songs about you, all of these things are just little indications, glimpses of your grace. And God, all of us to a person could point to countless areas of our lives where we've seen your hand at work, where we've seen you bless and be gentle and gracious and comforting. And God, you do all of that despite the fact that there was a time in our lives and maybe a time in the lives of some now where we stood shaking our fist in your face, demanding that you do things our way and viewing as evidence the fact that you didn't as a fact that you don't exist. And so God, for those in this room this morning who are struggling to believe whether or not you're real, would you show them in a powerful way this morning your reality? Would they see your gentleness, your comfort, your sacrifice, the suffering you experienced, the righteousness you demonstrated, the power that you showed over everything as a sign of your love and pursuit of them? You did this for them. And God, for those of us who find ourselves in moments or seasons of hardship and worry, would the story of Joseph's life be a reminder that you are ever-present with us that you do not forget and you do not leave, you do not abandon, no matter how much we struggle, no matter how foolish we remain, no matter how immature we act, that you preserve for yourself a line. We thank you that we get to be part of that line today. And pray, Lord, that we would learn the lessons that you'd have us learn from the life of Joseph and ultimately the way that he shows us the life of Christ. So God bless us in the remainder of our time together this morning. And we'll give you all the praise and the honor and the glory for it. Amen.